Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. So, Dr. Quick, thank you for discussing with me today about circadian rhythms in epilepsy. To begin with, may I ask you to introduce yourself? My name is Mark Quigg. I am the T.R. Johns Professor of Neurology at the University of Virginia, which is in Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. My clinical practice is in epileptology and sleep. And I have kind of a a broad-based research career, but it's centered for the purposes of today's talk in the chronobiology of epilepsy. So as a specialist in epilepsy, sleep, and circadian rhythms, could you explain what are circadian and multi-days rhythms in epilepsy and why is that important? Okay. Well, I think if we take a step back and just propose a very broad hypothesis that seizure occurrence whether electrographic or clinical, are events that occur not randomly, but as an emergent property of all the endogenous and exogenous influences that affect a patient. And those exogenous influences can be facilitatory or inhibitory, as well as the endogenous rhythms. And for the purposes of of today's questions, those influences can be cyclic. So just as an EEG can have a variety of rhythms on one page, you have a slow wave and there's a medium frequency on top and a, a very fast frequency on top of that. And that combination of very simple rhythms creates a very complex picture once all the nodes and nadirs add up. So seizures. And the rhythms that they have are the emergent property of the summation of all those different rhythms that affect the patient. So the rhythms are, are, we'll use circadian as beginning, circadian about one day. So that period is, is roughly 24 hours. Rhythms that are faster than circadian or ultra-dian, faster than a day. And ones that are slower than a day are infraridian. So that's kind of the, the range of those things. A great example of a ultridian rhythm that has important properties for sleep regulation is the alternation between REM and non-REM sleep. And examples of an uh, infraridian slow rhythm would be, for example, the lunar cycle or catamenial seizures to the monthly menstrual cycle. So you can imagine that a patient with medically intractable epilepsy perhaps is under the influence of very many additive cycles. And these the cyclic property of seizures and electrographic discharges and so forth has been known for a long time 150 years the difference is that we've gotten better and better at the math 
and at ways of isolating the different forces, the, the different cycles. So that's kind of the treetop overview. Could you give an example of one of these endogenous factors that can affect the risk of epilepsy? Well, I, I think the sleep-wake cycle is an important aspect of that. The sleep cycle, how we all tend to feel sleepy and fall asleep at the same time every day, is a property regulated by the circadian timing system. Sleep is facilitated or inhibited according to the internal circadian clock. So similarly, seizures can be facilitated or inhibited by the underlying sleep-wake state. The complicating factor that I should have mentioned at the beginning of the treetop view is that our knowledge of epilepsies is that particular epilepsy syndromes may be more or less susceptible to different kinds of rhythms or exogenous facilitators or inhibitors. So the syndromes are not equal in, in their susceptibility. A good example of an epilepsy that is nicely tied to the sleep-wake cycle is classically frontal lobe epilepsy, or perhaps more broadly, depending upon who you read, non-temporal lobe epilepsy, cortical epilepsies. And you know, a classic patient who typically has their seizures only during sleep, well, one can think, hmm, maybe that is a frontal lobe or at least a non-temporal cortical epilepsy. Right. So this leads to the next question. Do all patients have such fluctuations of epileptic seizures? Um, I'm going to have to fall back on the original observation by Gowers in 1880-something, who divided his observations of, of patients into three groups, day seizures, night seizures, and random. What we're finding, though, is that that random group probably is also susceptible to a cyclic expression. It's just a matter of observing a single patient long enough so that we can collect enough seizures to discern a pattern or having groups of homogeneous patients that can provide enough seizures for a long enough time to observe a pattern. This is the big issue with this particular business is that you know, over the years, technology has gotten better and better at helping us register the number of seizures that are necessary to observe a pattern. So I think it could be safely said that the better we get at measuring, the less of an incidence is this random, truly random group. How can we identify that patients have fluctuations of seizure risk? Well, early in my career, I collected seizure diaries from patients and did lots of seizure diary analysis. Seizure diaries are the gold standard of epilepsy drug trials. They can be very unreliable when it comes to seizures that are confined to sleep. But the point is, is that it's kind of a built-in error that we have accepted. And so if you have long enough seizure diaries, that's a great way to determine from a patient whether or not their seizures are happening at typically time of day. So a good bedside question I always ask is, do they notice a particular time of day in which most of their seizures occur? 
And the typical answer I get is, yeah, lots of them occur during sleep, or no, most of them are during the day, or they're all over the place. So going back to Gower's original observation. And besides human beings, these rhythms, have they been observed in other mammals or other animal models of epilepsy? Yes. Animal models of epilepsy are a great way to kind of break that limitation of humans, you know, trying to get enough homogeneous patients to make some conclusion about their rhythms or have enough seizures to discern a pattern. Because we can observe tons of animals for very long periods of time and with the proper EEG equipment determine that seizures are in fact seizures. So, for example, early in my career, I studied a rat model of limbic epilepsy, the self-sustaining limbic status epilepticus model developed by Ed Bertram and Eric Lothman. And I used their model in, in a rat lab that was basically a circadian lab, a chronobiology lab in which we could regulate light exposure and introduce random feeding so that there are no external time cues, close it up, turn off the lights, and observe seizures occurring in a free-running pattern, which is the fundamental property of circadian. So maybe we should state what the official definition of circadian is. Circadian is a free-running, approximately 24-hour cycle, uninfluenced by external forces. So it has to be self-sustaining in an environment that does not provide a timing cue. There are a variety of human experiments in which they use like old German bunkers <laughs> for isolating patients in the dark or patients, a normal healthy subjects, just to observe what the circadian clock was in humans. So observe patients in a free running environment. Doing that for humans is incredibly difficult. Matter of fact, there's been only one published study that I know of for human free-running seizure observation. That was done by a woman named Pavlova in the early 2000s, late 90s, in which she was able to use a forced desynchrony protocol in observing the appearance of the ictal or interictal epileptiform discharges in patients with JME and proved that they were truly circadian. So the beauty of animals is that you can show that th these are truly self-sustaining 24-hour rhythms. The critical experiment I did was compare the free-running seizures of this limbic epilepsy rat model to humans with temporal lobe epilepsy recorded in an epilepsy unit and showed that both these rhythms occurred in phase. So in other words, patients with mesial temporal lobe epilepsy have a peak seizure occurrence in a normal epilepsy unit environment with seizures occurring mainly between 12 and 6 at night. Rat models in a free-running environment maintain that circadian time identically. And this is despite the fact that rats are nocturnal creatures and sleep during the day and are awake at night. And 
humans, well, most of our humans <laughs> in the epilepsy unit are awake during the day and asleep at night. So their sleep-wake is out of phase, 180 degrees, but their seizure occurrence is in phase, proving that, at least in the case of temporal lobe epilepsy, that circadian forces are the predominant influence on seizure expression in a circadian fashion that overwhelms sleep-wake. How would you make the difference between the impact of the circadian rhythm and the homeostatic sleep pressure? Registration is now open for the 15th European Epilepsy Congress, held September 7th through 11th in Rome, Italy. Join your colleagues for five days of teaching courses, platform sessions, symposia, career development sessions, and more. To receive a discount on registration fees, register by May 10th. Visit the ILAE website for more information or register directly at bit.ly slash ILAE Rome. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash I-L-A-E R-O-M-E. All lowercase. Thanks for listening. Yeah, they are truly different cycles. The problem is, is that when you look at studies that tried to look at sleep deprivation as an independent influence, it's very hard to do, right? Because you need to figure out how to isolate sleep and wake from the equation. Sleep deprivation is separate from sleep-wake cycle, right? So you need to separate sleep deprivation from the sleep-wake cycle, and from the underlying circadian rhythm. Maybe that's an animal experiment that I don't think has been done. But in humans, attempts to prove that sleep deprivation, something we use in the epilepsy unit all the time, whether that's effective or not, sleep pressure or sleep homeostasis, really hasn't come to fruit. That's a long way of saying I'm not quite sure. (laughs) No, that's true. It's a procedure that we very often use, sleep deprivation, to increase the, the, the risk of seizure and seems to work very well in some patients, while in other patients, it seems to have no effect. So, for example, Beth Mallow, a long time ago, tried to show, I believe this was a letter in neurology, so it wasn't even yeah. a full-blown study, demonstrated in the epilepsy unit in people with focal epilepsy Sleep deprivation really didn't seem to have an overwhelming effect. But clinically, it's been well known that juvenile myoclonic epilepsy is very susceptible to sleep deprivation as a seizure trigger. Formalizing that observation, to my knowledge, hasn't quite been done yet, but it's a very common thing. So you're right, maybe that's why we haven't proven it well, because we haven't figured out the epilepsy syndrome to best test it by. This is where like animal research could really provide a great answer because, you know, the the different mouse or rat models correspond to the epilepsies differently, and that would be the best way to do it. Right. So if we are talking about subgroups, do you think, or do you know if there are subgroups of patients based on the localization of the focus or the duration of the disease or the gender that are most susceptible to having rhythms of epileptic seizures? 
So if you look at, for example, catamenial seizures are, it's a rhythm, it's lunar, meaning that the, the rhythm is roughly 28 days corresponding to the menstrual cycle. So it is a cycle. We think we know what is causing it, right? The menstrual cycle. Um, so that, that's gender-specific rhythm that is very commonly observed. Through the 1990s and, and through the early 2000s, people were still debating whether or not there's such thing as catamenial epilepsy. And I think it wasn't until Andy Herzog really sat down and categorized the different phases of the menstrual cycle in which different women may have susceptibility to epilepsy and discovered that there are different phases and kind of cleared up that noise problem and, and demonstrated catamenial epilepsy very effectively. The other thing that you can use is these things all depend upon a reliable timing marker, a phase marker. And so if you use onset of menstrual bleeding as a phase marker and you stretch each cycle to a common period. So if some woman has 25 days, the other one has 31, and you adjust everything so it's 28 days, those patterns are very, very robust. The ones that we can't explain are the Inferidian or multidean patterns that are revealed by implanted ECOG systems now. So this is kind of where the technology has led us. I told you that this business has been advanced by just better being able to collect the seizures in a reliable fashion. The RNS system is basically an implantable ECOG, and you can observe fast circadian and slow rhythms in the various patterns detected by the RNS. And the Australian group with their implanted systems has been very productive in demonstrating seizure clustering, seizure periodicity, again, to a variety of rhythms. And explaining these rhythms is the next step. I think that's the hard step to do. And also, as a community, deciding what is an accurate observation and what is not is going to need to be worked out. So, for example, Maxine Bald's group and our group, too, uh, working with David Spencer from Oregon, we looked at RNS data to determine seizure cyclicity. And one has to realize the RNS is not an ECOG recorder. I mean, it records ECOGs, but it's not designed to be an EEG system, right? It is designed to administer electrical discharges as detected by a human-written program. So you can't necessarily use the detections as a surrogate marker for seizures because the detections could be just inaccurate, right? They're just zapping something that isn't there. What you have to do to be rigorous about it is to take that one step further and look at the actual ECOGs recorded with the detections. So what our paper did is we got a bunch of EEG readers, experts, and we kind of rated over 7,000 recordings as to whether or not they were actual seizures or not. 
And uh, we demonstrated our inter-rater reliability. Now, I didn't read 7,000 ECOGs. <laughs> we divided it up into like six different pairs, and we all read a, a section of these. But we, we demonstrated decent inter-rater reliability. And then we were able to provide a weighting or a reliability index to each one of these ECOGs. And then in our subsequent paper, we then said, oh, let's use the high rated ones and determine the circadian and infraridian or multidian patterns from those reliable recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, both our work and the BALD group have shown, I think they use detections, and but I think it largely agrees with the, the more in-depth ECOG view is that patients will have rhythms, many patients will have rhythms of more than 24 hours, but they're at odd, odd frequencies that don't really make sense. 17 days, 15 days, 12 days. And to be honest, I, I can't remember if there is a, a distribution curve. I don't know where the, the maximum expression is in the slower rhythms. But I, I think the the issue is, is trying to think through what we know biologically, what could be the endogenous or the exogenous force that's occurring in these kind of odd, slow time signatures. I haven't really heard a valid hypothesis as to why that is. If you don't have catamenial seizures, well, we don't really have a rhythm that goes by every 17 days that we know of biologically. So, you know, I think from a pathophysiological standpoint, I think we really have to think hard now is like, okay, we have the ability to start looking at long recordings from individuals and try to match that up with biology. That's the promise ahead. But I don't have the answer as to which brain mechanism can account for a multi-DN or, or infraridian expression. Notice that I'm using the term multi-DN and infraridian as synonyms. I don't really think they're different. I think it's just people using different words for the same thing. What... I think it leads to those the fact that we're that patients are polyphasic. <laughs> you know, going back to my opening statement that seizures are the emergent property of multiple rhythms. And in line with this, are you aware of other biological fluctuations, other biological rhythms? There are seasonal rhythms. So um Marcus Ng from Winnipeg is studying cases of status epilepticus that are occurring in the far north of Canada, way, way up there in these little isolated villages. And he's shown that the number of cases of status epilepticus that are flown in from these little villages down to the hospitals have a um, late spring phase. I may be misquoting him here, so forgive me, Marcus, but uh, I'm going to say April, May, June. Uh, that quarter seems to be a strong rhythm that is apparent on the seasonal basis. As to why that's happening, we don't know. 
but it could be something as simple as enhanced light exposure above the Arctic Circle, transitioning from something in which there's light and dark to when there's continuous or near continuous light. It could be also linked to a decreased sleep duration. Exactly. Exactly. So it could be just as something as simple as that, a, a mm -hmm. seasonal rhythm messing around with sleep homeostasis. One of the challenges of chronobiology is that isolating the particular influence sufficiently for you to be able to say, that that is it. So that's where you know we're at right now. We're getting much better at measuring. We still haven't been great at explaining. In terms of patients' management, how do you think that this research can help? Well, I, I think by being aware that many patients, if not the majority, have a cyclic occurrence of their seizures, is to use some of that knowledge in identifying their epilepsy syndrome and and helping to categorize which one is. So we just in this talk we've said that temporal lobe epilepsy is a day problem for most. Frontal lobe epilepsy is a night problem. You can use that clinical information to help identify localization. From a safety standpoint, well, I mean it's impractical to have implanted electrocorticography in all patients. <laughs> But, you know, if we did, or if there are other ways to provide some sort of biological monitoring, identifying these multiplicity of rhythms can certainly lead up to the point in which you can provide prediction algorithms for individual patients. Perhaps say, geez, between September Third and seventh, you have a 50% chance of having a seizure, but between the seventh and the 19th, you have a 10% chance of having a seizure. So we haven't gotten to that point yet, but for example, the folks with Seizure Tracker, the, that app, which is basically a fancy phone-based calendar, mm -hmm. uh, they've done lots of population-based studies, basically a fancy seizure diary to kind of come up with these predictive algorithms for, for patients. So I think maybe, you know, as long as patients are reliable in reporting seizure diaries, maybe that can be something to provide uh, patients kind of these windows of opportunity, if you will, or windows of risk. I think that's a very practical thing that actually, if you can identify epilepsy syndrome and apply it To patients or after enough seizures of individual patients to supply some sort of risk benefit thing. Again, the key is individual patients observe long enough having enough seizures. So paradoxically, all these great observations were better the sicker the patient is, right? Mm -hmm. So the, these risk window prediction things kind of are paradoxical because what we really want is to give a person with rare or breakthrough seizures ample warning. So I, I think the, the patients who can benefit the most from this these prediction algorithms are paradoxically the ones who we have the hardest time coming up with a pattern. Um, so those are, I, I think, two practical issues. And the third I'll mention is what, what we haven't talked about is chronopharmacology, which I think is still a relatively understudied phenomenon in that 
by manipulating the dosing pattern of an anti-seizure medication, you can perhaps best meet the patient's needs as far as avoiding toxicity or having more drug aboard when they're most susceptible. So this has been done from time to time, especially with some of the older medications, Dilantin, Tegretol. There's some older studies back there. I'll step out on a limb and say relatively safely that most of these liver-based metabolism of anti-seizure medications are accelerated at night and inhibited during the day. So lots of these older studies have shown that if you can take a BID dosing schedule and weight it like 25 or 30% to the night dose, you can help better seizure control and avoid daytime toxicity. So for example, it's common with me using Lamictal to, if someone's you know, on that cusp of toxicity of 400 milligrams a day, uh, it's common for me to uh, dose at 150 in the morning and 250 at night, especially if they have very robust pattern of early day or nighttime seizures. So the, 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 those are kind of three practical areas that uh, chronobiology can, can help in patient management. So adapting treatment in, is one of the benefits of this research. And mm -hmm. I, I expect that all patients or most patients included in these studies were taking medications while we have identified their rhythms. You've gotten to the key point of, of the, the thing is that all these observations are taken from patients taking medications. And where the animal, the animal research can really mm -hmm. help us. I mentioned quite early on my observation of temporal lobe epilepsy being a daytime phenomenon. This was an epilepsy unit, and I couldn't account for the fact that some of the seizures were occurring early on when they still had medications versus late seizures that may be in the setting of no anticonvulsant medications because they've been tapered off as part of their clinical evaluation. And there's no way for me to, to, to account for that in a robust fashion. And that, that is the same susceptibility that all these studies in humans have had. So it's still hard to for me to explain seasonal or every 17 days right. or, or right. things due to pharmacokinetics. And do we know if other factors can influence these rhythms? Well, I'll give an example of lunar rhythms. Mm -hmm. This is something that we know something about. So it's been observed for a very long time, especially in emergency rooms. The suspicious nurses would say, oh, it's a full moon out. Bad things are going to happen. And turns out it's true that if you look at population-based admissions to emergency rooms for status epilepticus or severe seizures, that they do occur during the full moon. And this has been replicated under at least three publications I can think off the top of my head. Why that happens, I think, was best revealed by, I believe, it was a German study that went back and looked at the full moons that were obscured by bad weather. And they demonstrated that the nights in which the full moon was obscured, seizure occurrence was normal baseline. So 
That's one example where an exogenous force, there's nothing mysterious. There's no weird gravity or tides or anything like that. It's just more or less light exposure, keeping people up or sleep depriving them. So that, that is a clear example of a, an exogenous rhythmic force results in a biologic rhythm, but it's basically keeping the lights on at night. Thanks for listening to Sharp Waves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharp Waves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.